0: Our guest today is Tom Hurd, who is on the search for his birth family, and he's going to be telling us about uh, what he's doing with that. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. Why don't we start with uh, who you are and what you you do in your sort of day-to-day life?
1: Most importantly, I'm a father of four. Um, I'm in the army. I've been in the army since uh, January 2000. Currently, I'm stationed at Fort Knox. I work at a Human Resources Command, and um, I love to run. That's my hobby.
0: So, tell us a little bit about um, your background as an adoptee.
1: So, I was adopted in the summer of 1988 in July, and I was adopted by a family in New Jersey. It was pretty cut and dry to me. You know, from my understanding, it was. You know, an adoption that it was like out of necessity. My mother knew that El Salvador was going through a civil war and she couldn't take care of us. But pretty standard adoption, moved to New Jersey and, and grew up in New Jersey.
2: How old were you when you were adopted?
1: Almost seven. Oh,
2: okay. So you had some memories of, of living in El Salvador and your
1: family? And stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of memories. I sure do. Uh, So you
0: grew up in New Jersey, went to school there, kind of had a normal kind of, I guess, American upbringing after that. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: So the people that adopted me couldn't have children of their own. So they had originally adopted a girl from Korea and then adopted myself and my sister from El Salvador. And then, uh, you know, through modern science, ended up having their own child. So it was pretty – it was like New York City in one house.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in New Jersey with your birth sister too, right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. When you were growing up, did you ever think about looking for your birth family or going back to El Salvador or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always been. You know, it was no secret that I was adopted, <laughs> you know. So it was, you know, it was a conversation that that happened every now and then, and you know, my adoptive mother. It was really encouraging about that, you know, that if you ever, you know, wanted to do that, you know, that she would help and that, you know, anything she could do to help. You know, she encouraged my my sister that's adopted from Korea, she encouraged her to do the same, and she actually met her family and stuff like that. So, um, But as an adult, I didn't think about it too much because, you know, when I found out that El Salvador had an earthquake, I kind of was scared to ask for answers and to look because, I, you know... I didn't know what would turn up, if anything,
0: were you worried about not finding anything?
1: yeah, I mean I really was i i had I could never get like a specific answer to where my family was, you know when I was adopted or where they lived you know I, I have all those answers now, but you know when i I heard about the earthquake and the mudslides, there was a lot of talk that like an entire village was engulfed you know and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So
0: when did you finally decide to start searching for your birth family?
1: Well, I never, I never actually did. It was my wife. She, she thought it was really important uh, that that we have some answers for our children. Because when I would go to a doctor's appointment, you know, and they talk about family history, I, I couldn't tell them anything. Hmm. I, I, it was just a, a simple, I don't know, I was adopted. So she was very adamant that we start some sort of search and. And, that, and that's kind of how it happened. Uh, we started February 2014 is when we started, and yeah, and then that that's took us two years. You just met your family again just like a month or two ago, right? Yeah, February 20th was our first like computer Skype chat. Yeah, after 27 years. Yeah. Well.
0: Did you find the, the process of searching difficult? Uh, was it, you know, two years is can be a long time to wait? I, I've heard of other people waiting longer, but, you know, was that, how did, how did you take that, the waiting game?
1: Honestly, I'd forget sometimes that we were still in the process of searching because months would go by and we wouldn't hear anything. And uh, my wife would send emails pretty frequently asking them for an update and they'd they would give us updates, and one interruption was that there was, I guess some vandals had gotten into the Pro-B, mm-hmm. uh, Pro-B offices or, or something like that, so that, that kind of put some stuff on hold, and then there was already a backlog of DNA testing, and having the career that I do, I'm you know, active-duty soldier in the Army, so I, my days are, are long and filled with a lot of work and stuff that keeps you busy so I didn't it didn't feel like two years it was kind of amazing when we looked back on it that it had taken two years but it it certainly didn't feel like it
0: tell us a little bit about how um how you found out like I I know you did the Skype call um you said February 20th but what happened before that
1: so actually we found it in December so December was a pretty rough month for our family my father passed away my adopted father passed away and then when we got home from his funeral, we got back to Kentucky from the funeral, we had an email that, from Pro B that said that they found a match. But they still were waiting on a couple things to absolutely confirm it. And so we asked them, you know, so if it is a match, what are we talking about? Is it a sibling? Is it? And they said, so if, if the match is good, then it would be your mother. And so like I said December was a rough month but you know the same month that I lost my father I, I found my mother so it was you know bittersweet
0: kind of a lot going on at once
1: Absolutely yeah
0: <laughs> And did you did you want to like jump right in and do the call or did you want to wait I mean I know uh when I was reunited with my birth family there was um, you know, we didn't have the internet and we couldn't make a Skype call right away. But we waited for the DNA test and for us it took a month. And I, I remember that basically the the month that we had the DNA test and then the next two months before we went down and flew down and met them. It was a really sort of uh stressful time, not in not in the sense of like being stressed out that something bad is gonna happen, but just that you want to meet these people. You want to, you know, get there. And uh, I'm wondering if you felt any of that.
1: You kind of just described what I was feeling and didn't really know it. Uh, so I was very anxious, and we, it was actually delayed a week because of some family stuff. Um, and, it, and it kind of made me mad because I just wanted to get on on the computer and see her and talk to her. Um but it was interesting i i had some trouble sleeping the night before cuz i started to get really nervous cuz i didn't know what what's the proper emotion after not not seeing your mother in 27 years i didn't want to disappoint her i didn't want to you know i just didn't know what to feel you know um but ultimately after everything kind of settled down it was it was kind of like a peaceful calming feel you know i was very i was very very happy, and, you know, I could tell that she was very happy, so it was kind of, you know, happiness was the best way to describe it after the fact, but leading up to it was certainly a stress that I hadn't really ever felt.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of my experience has been very similar to that, where it's like, what do you make of this, you know, and this is many different situations, not just meeting my birth family, but, like, what's the proper response to this? There is no proper response and it's hard to kind of, you right. don't know how you feel. And it kind of like, it catches up with you, you know, weeks or months later and you're like, oh, okay, now now I'm feeling that. Um, but right. it, I, I saw the video of, of that chat or parts of the video of that chat and it was clearly, it, it meant a lot to your mother. Can, can you tell us a little right. bit about what that was like for you to to see her and watch her reaction.
1: Yeah, so I I typically don't get emotional. I don't uh, you know I don't cry often or much at all. Um, but that was really it was very emotional to see her to get upset. I couldn't understand what she was saying, but emotions you know you can see emotion and it was. It was tough, but I think that she, you know, this whole thing has got, obviously it was harder for her than it was for me because my understanding was that it was a consensual adoption and that, you know, it was, it was, you know, for the betterment of my upbringing, whereas hers, you know, it wasn't the case and I couldn't imagine what she went through emotionally. So.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what she went through?
1: Yeah, so so the sto- the story that I've gotten is that she was uh you know cleaning houses, you know, to make ends meet. And this lawyer, who's actually, you know, if you were to google his name, is a pretty popular name, Parada, his wife would talk to my mother and tell her that she should put us in this boarding school or this orphanage in order to so we didn't have to go without a meal. And and she said, yeah, but I don't want to put them up for adoption, so why would I put them in an orphanage? And she said, no, no, you, they're they wouldn't be. They would just be there, and you can go see them as often as you'd like. And that, she said in the beginning, it was like that, that she would come see us. And I actually remember her visiting us in the orphanage. And then she said that it became more difficult for her, and then we were gone. So you know, uh, apparently this lawyer, Parada, did this to, you know, 40 other families. So there was, you know, there's obviously there was some um, you know, calculated deception because you know, they took advantage of a woman that you can't read, can't write you know and, and, and let her believe that she was putting her children in, you know, a safer situation than they had and Really, what she was doing was illegal and, and trying to make money off of it.
0: So, did that bother you at all to find that out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it did, but mostly because of what my mother must have gone through hmm. and felt. You know, I couldn't imagine that I have four children of my own and I would go to the ends of the earth if it took that, if something like that were to ever happen. You know, and I wouldn't stop, you know. So if I can't imagine being in a position, you know, you think about it too 1988, technology isn't what it is today. You know, she's poor, she's uneducated, she doesn't have any of the means to get any real results. And she, she said she went to the police and the police couldn't do anything. So,
0: you know, I find that one of the difficult things about being adopted from El Salvador is often. It's not just reuniting with your family that's difficult. It's like the way that we are separated from our families is often the most difficult part of the separation and reunion I've
1: found right, right, yeah, and there's just a lot of um there's just a lot of hurt you can't take back or you know there's a lot of healing that's got to happen and um you know, I think we're on that road you know we're down we're headed down that path finally you know you've
0: done the the skype call and what's next for your family
1: so so it's funny we talk regularly uh now because again modern technology everybody has facebook even my (laughs) family down in el salvador so we'll (laughs) message on facebook and at times it can get a little overwhelming because i don't speak spanish and i'm sitting there and they're texting me in spanish and i've got to copy-paste it, put it into Google Translate, and then you know how that works. It doesn't necessarily come across what they were trying to say. So it's it, it's been fun. It has been a little overwhelming at times because I'll have, you know, like I, I, we had said earlier, I was just looking for somebody, but what we found was my entire family. I mean, sisters, brother, aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, nieces, nephews. So as you can imagine, I'm only one person. And then I have an entire family that is trying to make contact with me. And um, sometimes I just have to put my phone down. <laughs> it gets overwhelming with all the translating. So.
0: Yeah, I grew up with a brother here in the States and one aunt and one uncle. And I went from that to having two more, three more siblings and like 14 aunts and uncles with oh, yeah. uh, all kinds of cousins. So it was like this small American family to this big Latin family all at once. So I, I hear you. <laughs> it be a little overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So you speak a lot, and then you're working to bring your birth mother and your brother to the States. Yeah, so...
1: Uh, I think because of what I do, being in the military, that I've always kind of had a concern with going to El Salvador because it's still not necessarily, you know, it's not completely safe. You know, the same could be said about a lot of cities in America, but at least I speak the language, and that's, that's I think, what concerns me is that I look like them, but then if I open my mouth, it's, I've always thought that, that that would not help me, and I've got a lot of people relying on me here, you know, four kids and a wife. So I wouldn't wanna put myself in a you know in a unsafe situation. Um but the more I've talked with them, the more that I'm realizing that maybe it would be safe. But more importantly, we're working towards this reunion to bring her and my brother here because it's it's about more than just me at this point. I want her to meet her grandkids. I want her to meet my wife, you know. And if I had to just go to El Salvador, you know, it it satisfies my, you know, need to see my mother and see her face to face again. But it doesn't on the family level. So, um, so yeah, we're working towards a reunion and and starting that process.
2: You know, too. You've got the rest of your life, so maybe you go there two years from now, right? I mean, yeah, exactly.
0: And you're currently doing a GoFundMe campaign to raise funds to bring your birth mother and your brother to the States?
1: Yep. It's been pretty successful. We're at uh, $2,200 now, and I think I think we'll continue to do well. I think
2: you can talk about some of the expenses that you, you'd face, like like what getting a visa can cost a person from rural El Salvador compared to what they're making, or a plane ticket, or just getting lunch in Kentucky, right? I mean, there's, right. the economies are very different. What, what people earn is different, and the barriers are pretty
1: large, right? Right, the, and that's the thing is that I was asking my sister, it's a, a great example, I was asking my sister, how much is rent, you know, for a house? And she said it's uh, anywhere from 100 to $150. And I said, wow, that's incredible we pay 1600 dollars a month for our house and she said that's enough money for an entire year you know <laughs> so there's there's obviously you know they use the same currency they use the US dollar but uh you're right like the visa application process starts at 300 dollars a piece that's like two or three months rent right right exactly and that isn't it then they've got to hire somebody to help them like a lawyer because there are things they don't understand about the process that this person who is going to help them does understand, and that's what they do. So it's, there's almost like a business in helping people get visas because then she she charges a fee for her help. So, you know, by the time it's all said and done, the visa process could be $1,000 for both of them. And so you'd have to go to the Capitol, and the Capitol is a three-and-a-half-hour drive. And then the travel to get to and from it ends up being a whole day and so my mother and our family they they work to survive they don't work for that vacation they've been saving for or anything like that They're, you know my mother has to work from 4 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night to put food on the table so what I'm asking her to do is come here for a month you know to have this reunion so we have to take that into consideration that she is not going to be there working and putting, providing. So that's some of the costs as well that, you know, in order to make this reunion possible, we have to offset their income. You know, and then the plane tickets, airfare, and, and everything like that. So I didn't realize the visa process could take so long either. That's the other thing too is I actually got a, a message from uh, um, somebody this morning that has gone through this process that you guys know, Isabel, and she was saying that the visa process for her mother took two years. Wow, which I don't think I I was not prepared to hear that. <laughs> so, because uh, we're we're hoping for a reunion this summer, and actually, I'm I'm supposed to be deploying uh, in January. So, if it doesn't happen this summer, and it really does in fact take that long you know, I'll be out of the country for a year.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts in that. And um, we wish you the best hope that this, this happens because uh, I know having been through it, how it's one thing to see pictures or or Skype with someone It's totally different thing to be in person and be able to uh, sort of look at the other person in the eyes. And I know that I've, um, for me, it was really kind of transformative because I could see the way that my family walked and I was like, Oh, that's the same kind of like waddle that I do. And you could pick <laughs> up on all these different sort of mannerisms and things like that. And it's just, it's uh really nice to be able to have that. And I'm just wondering, like, are you now, are you getting nervous about seeing them in person or excited about the, you know, like the, the moment that you get to see them, or are you just, just going to take it and see how it all, how it goes?
1: Yeah, so at this point i'm not I'm not nervous, but maybe driving to the airport when when they're gonna land that might that might be something different um we're you know fortunate to have um we've got people my wife's stepmother is Chilean, so she speaks Spanish and she's already said she's gonna come down during that time, so we don't have to hire a translator and then uh one of my wife's cousins uh is married to somebody that's Hispanic, that speaks Spanish. So I think I would be more nervous if we didn't have that in our family and ha- would have to hire a translator. But I think once we get a little closer, I will get nervous. I'm not nervous right now. I'm more focused on trying to make our campaign successful. So.
0: And what is the link where people can donate?
1: So it's you know www.gofundme.com, Tom's Reunion.
0: And we'll put a a link in the show notes for people listening where you can donate if you would like to. And uh, that'd be great. I wanted to ask you what advice you would give to someone who is going through this process. Like let's say someone's listening to this interview a year from now, what advice would you give to them?
1: I, I guess just, just be prepared for really everything because when you, when you start this, it's obviously with, the intentions of getting the best results, but you don't necessarily know what you're going to find out and that you've got to be able to you know, prepare yourself for really anything and take the good with the bad and just, you know, it's a lot of emotions. So,
0: John, did you have anything else you wanted to
2: add or ask? Uh, thanks for for doing this and we wish you the the best with your family and hope things happen quickly for you yeah
1: absolutely thank you Mm
0: -hmm. so everyone listening at home we will put a link as I said in the show notes where you can donate if you would like to and again thank you Tom for coming on and sharing your story and uh, we'll let everyone know um, what happens and uh, if you're able to have your reunion thank you